Today we're going to be talking about baptism. Baptism. I shouldn't say Baptist. It should say baptism. Um, um, baptism what, why, and, and who? And so to guide us in this today, I'd like to look at two passages, Ephesians chapter 2 and Romans chapter 6. Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 through 10, and Romans 6 beginning in verse 1. Ephesians 2, the Apostle Paul writes, And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ, by grace you have been saved, and raised us up with him, and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not of your own doing, it is the gift of God, not the result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. And now Romans chapter 6, verses 1 through 14. Again, the Apostle Paul writes, What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father we too might walk in newness of life. For if we have been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing, so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. For one who has died has been set free from sin. But now if, he, if we have died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. We know that Christ, being raised from the dead, will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. For the death he died, he died to sin once for all. But the life he lives, he lives to God. So you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. 
Let no sin therefore reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. Do not present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life, and your members to God as instruments for righteousness. For sin will have no dominion over you, since you are not under law, but under grace. This is the reading of God's word, and we say, thanks be to God. Let's pray. Indeed, Father, thank you for speaking to us. And now here in the next few moments, as we look upon this your words teaching on baptism and what it is and why those who claim your name should uh, submit to baptism. We pray that you would speak to all of us, to the believers here who have been baptized, that this may be an encouragement uh, to us, that we remember this means of grace that you've given to us, And how informative it is for our Christian walk. Uh, For those who are Christians and who have yet to be baptized, may they be challenged and encouraged uh, to be obedient to Christ in this direction. And for those who do not yet know Jesus as Savior, we pray that as we explore what baptism means and what it symbolizes, that your word would even now penetrate into their hearts and minds and that by your spirit, you would be quickening their, uh, their souls, that you would um, regenerate their hearts, that you would remove from them a heart of stone and give them a heart of flesh. And so now as we look at this, this important Christian doctrine, speak to us. And it's in Christ's name that we pray, and all God's people said, amen. Well, I am a, uh, that's supposed to say baptism, uh, but it's Baptist. I am a Baptist. Uh, Not like John the Baptist. He was John the baptizer. He was the, the, perhaps the first Baptist. Um, But I am Baptist. And even more than that, I would be what's called Reformed Baptist. Although some people who are Reformed, trademark, um, Anyway, um, reform trademark code. Ah, reform Baptists aren't Baptists. Uh, well, that what that means. What I mean by that is to say that I actually hold to the doctrines of grace, to the five solas of the Reformation, um, and I believe that uh, only believers, professed believers in Jesus Christ, are to be baptized. Hence, the believers' baptism, or what's sometimes called um, credo Baptist. We are a Baptist church, and in two weeks from today. As I announced earlier, we're going to have our annual baptism service uh, at 1030 at Green Lake. So today is the opportunity for us to, uh, for the ones who are, uh, who are recently baptized, who was baptized last year, were a couple baptized last year, right? Uh, and there's a couple who are um, learning about baptism uh, today. We're all going to, to learn about it today. Um, So this is primarily a teaching for the the candidates for baptism, but as I prayed, this is for everyone. For those of us who have been baptized, we can learn and be reminded of what the meaning of it is. What is baptism? Well, 
the, the Greek word baptism comes from, the, uh, the word baptism comes from the Greek word baptizo, which means to dip. It's a term that was used for washings. It was the term that is used for dyeing of clothing. It's really hard to dye clothing by just sprinkling it. Laying my cards out on the table here. Uh, it was to be dipped and soaked in the water. And so that's what the word baptism means. It's used in lots of different ways. It's used for washing. It's used for things like dyeing of clothes. But in the Bible, it's uh, used as the ceremony that uh, what initiates a, a Christian into the Christian life and into the church. Uh, you see this even, not just even in the New Testament, but even in the Old Testament, they would take um, a physical act and they would perform it to convey a spiritual reality. Okay, this is, it would symbolize things. You would take this physical act and you would convey a spiritual reality. Or you would do something outwardly that was done to represent some sort of inward change. So that's what baptism is. It's the outward and the physical act performed that's symbolizing or representing an inward or spiritual change. So, for example, like you could take something as simple as, as washing the outer part of the body, but it symbolizes an inward cleansing or a change uh, of heart. So the act of washing and what that means when you have just been fresh, take a nice, fresh, hot shower after you've been working or something and, you know, dirty and grimy and you take the shower and then you put on fresh, clean clothes. Who doesn't love that, right? We just got back from camping a couple of nights this week, and, and I love camping. It's, it's always wonderful. Um, but you're sleeping on the ground, and I'm getting kind of old to get up off of the ground. I didn't realize how hard it is to get up off the ground after you've been sleeping there all night. And sometimes it's cold, and you get to sleep with some bugs, but you, know, you kind of look past all of that, and you think of how wonderful it is. And where we were was, it was not too bad. There was a place you could, there was a place where you could wash or take a shower. It's not a fantastic facility. Um, but for those of you who've been camping, you know what it's like, even if you have a place to kind of wash up, when you come home, that first shower, right? And it's just wonderful. Like that you come home, you've taken off uh, the dirty clothes, you've washed, and then you put on clean clothes and you, you go to sleep and you sleep really well. This is kind of what baptism pictures. It's that change. And this is what John the Baptist was doing. He was taking a, a physical act that was a common act. It was a ceremonial act conveying kind of like ceremonial washing before the priests would go and perform their duties in the temple or as people would uh, ceremonially come into the synagogues to learn, they would wash. Uh, John the Baptist was using that at the beginning of the Gospels to convey a call to repentance, a change of heart for the people of Israel. So turn with me to, to uh, Matthew's gospel, Matthew chapter 3. You can look at a little bit of John the Baptist. Matthew chapter 3. In those days, John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness of Judea. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. This is a forerunner of Jesus Christ, who is the servant of the Lord, who is going to come. 
And he's preparing the people beforehand. Jesus isn't just going to show up. The Old Testament says there has to be a forerunner who's going to announce his coming and prepare the people, prepare their hearts for his coming. And he says, repent for the kingdom of heaven is his hand. And then Matthew writes, for this is he of who was spoken by the prophet Isaiah when he said, the voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make straight his paths. Matthew reminds us that John is actually fulfilling what the Old Testament predicted would happen. Now, John wore a garment of camel's hair and a leather belt around his waist, and his food was locusts and wild honey. Then Jerusalem and all Judea and all the region about the Jordan were going out to him, and they were baptized by him in the Jordan, the river Jordan. And notice what this is conveying, okay? There's nothing magical about the waters of the Jordan, Nothing more holy about the water of the Jordan River than, uh, than anywhere else. But he was, this outward symbol represented something that was supposed to be happening inwardly. And he tells us here in verse 6, it's they're confessing their sins. John gives a challenge to those who were coming out to watch what he was doing or even participate in what he was doing. And they didn't have that inward spiritual reality. Verse 7, when he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming to his baptism, he said to them, you brood of vipers who warned you to flee from the coming wrath, the wrath to come. Bear fruit in keeping with repentance, right? So you're confessing your sins and you're to be repenting. And it should be a genuine, a real thing that's happening. He goes on to say, I, and do not presume to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father. I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. And even now the axe is laid at the root of the trees. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. He now explains more of what his baptism is after warning them. He says, I baptize you with water for repentance for he who is coming after me is mightier than I, whose sandals I am not worthy to carry. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand, and he will clear his threshing floor and gather his wheat into the barn. But the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. So here you have John the Baptist uh, giving us a picture here at the very beginning of Jesus' ministry of baptism. Now, it doesn't just stop with John's baptism, however. Jesus now comes and he gets baptized. John goes, or Matthew goes on to continue to say at the rest of uh, chapter three. And John stops him and he says, actually, this is, we've got our roles reversed here. He goes, I'm your, I'm a, I'm a servant of you. I'm preparing your way. I should be baptized by you. And yet you come to me. And Jesus goes, no, in order for me to identify with the people who are coming in repentance, I'm going to do this. I'm modeling this for everyone to follow. And so Jesus himself undergoes this baptism, which is uh, giving his approval to John's baptism. And then immediately after Jesus is baptized, and again, he goes into the water, he comes out of the water. You have God the Father giving his approval to Jesus, who is giving the approval to John's baptism. Notice what it says in verses 16 and 17. And when Jesus was baptized, immediately he went up, from the water, and behold, the heavens were opened, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove 
and coming to rest on him, and behold, a voice from heaven said, This is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. So here you have John's baptism, Jesus undergoing John's baptism. And then after Jesus' ministry, his life, his death, and his resurrection, and he appears to his disciples at the end of Matthew's gospel, Jesus now commissions the apostles to go and make other disciples share the good news about Jesus Christ, about him, so that the world could now hear that word and that message and that the Holy Spirit could work in their hearts to make them regenerated believers in Jesus Christ. He gives them this commission at the very end of Matthew's gospel, Matthew 28, verses 18, 19, and 20. He came to his apostles and he said, All authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations. Okay, not, not just Israel, not just Jews, of all the nations. And then he says, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. It's a Trinitarian baptism. It's not three gods. The word um, name is singular. So it's in the name of God, the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. It's in the name of the one God in three persons. And then he says, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you to the end of the age. So here, Jesus tells his apostles that this, this act that was like John's baptism has now been uh, augmented, transformed, uh, redefined into a, a, the, the work of the, the triune God for faith, for those who have faith in Jesus Christ that they would be saved, they would be his disciples. Jesus is connecting all of that, and he said, this is the initiation into the Christian life. Make them disciples, and then baptize them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. An ordinary thing, just ordinary water, but yet it's conveying a deep spiritual truth of the washing and cleansing that comes to those who believe in Jesus Christ. Turn with me to Acts, and we'll see, just kind of survey really quickly a couple of the uh, ways you see this fleshed out in the early church. In Acts chapter 2, it's the day of Pentecost. Jesus has already ascended to the Father. He says to his, uh, his apostles, wait in Jerusalem, and then I will send the Holy Spirit. And he comes and the people are crowded around wondering what is happening. And they're asking themselves, what, what is going on with them speaking in all of these languages that we know? We come from far away. We come from Parthia, from Media, from Elam, from Mesopotamia, from Cappadocia, we, from Asia. We're coming from all over. And all of these, this group of disciples of Jesus Christ are speaking to our language. And they're talking about this amazing work of this man, Jesus the Christ. They think that they're drunk. And Peter says, no, it's not, not drunk. It's too early in the morning for that. And he goes on to explain to them the work of Jesus Christ throughout that rest of chapter 2 in Acts chapter 2. And he ends, notice how he ends here, um, verse 36 of Acts chapter 2. Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him, that is Jesus Christ, has made him both Lord and Lord. 
Christ or Messiah, this Jesus whom you crucified. Now when they, this crowd, heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brothers, well then what should we do? And Peter said to them, Repent. And connected to that word repent there is believe in this man, Jesus Christ. Repent. And be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Notice, skip down to verse 41. Peter continues to preaching to them. And so those who received his word were baptized, and there were added that day about 3,000 souls. Can you imagine a baptism service with 3,000? Some people think that they couldn't have been immersing people there because it's outside of Jerusalem and 3,000 people. But when I was in Israel, they had just excavated the steps leading up to the, um, the temple mount where it was, and they found dozens of these ceremonial ritual baths, which totally changes the picture. They were like, you could actually have gotten 3,000 people baptized um, baptized here. They continue on. Skip to Acts chapter 8. Philip goes and preaches the gospel. Acts chapter 8 verses 12 and 13. He preaches the gospel. Verse 12, but when they believed Philip as he preached good news about the kingdom of God and the name of Jesus Christ, they were baptized, both, both men and women. What's significant about this is to whom he's preaching. He's preaching to the region of Samaria or to the Samaritans who were half Jewish and half not Jewish. And so this is a significant moment because they were getting baptized and they were receiving the Holy Spirit. They were forgiven of their sins. You didn't have to become fully Jewish in order to be saved. Same thing happens in Acts chapter 10. Look at Acts chapter 10, verses 47 and 48. The background here is there's a a Gentile official named Cornelius. He was a centurion. And um, uh, uh, he has a vision from a messenger of God. It says, hey, there's this guy named Simon, Peter. You need to call him and talk to him. And so Peter goes and he talks to Cornelius and Cornelius says, I heard you have a message from the Lord for me. What is it? Boy, talk about handing an an evangelistic opportunity right on a plate. And so Peter explains the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And Cornelius believes. And then notice verses 44 through 48. While Peter was still saying these things, the Holy Spirit fell on all who heard the word. Notice the word and spirit working together. And the believers from among the circumcised who had come with Peter were amazed because the gift of the Holy Spirit was poured out even on the Gentiles. For they were hearing them speaking in tongues and extolling God. And Peter declared, can anyone withhold water for baptizing these people who have received the Holy Spirit just as we have? They've come to believe That Jesus indeed was the Savior of the world, the Christ. And when he sees the evidence of this in their lives, the first thing he says, we got to get some water. 
Don't, don't withhold water from them just because they're Gentiles. Jesus had said, make disciples of all nations, baptizing them. And so verse 48, and he commanded them to be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. And then they asked him to remain for a couple of days. Acts chapter 16, as Paul is on his missionary journeys, meets a, a, a Jewish woman who becomes a believer. Verse 14 of Acts chapter 16, one who heard us, and the us there is because the writer of Acts is Luke, and he was a, a companion of Paul's on these journeys. One who heard us was a woman named Lydia from the city of Thyatira, a seller of purple goods, who was a worshiper of God. And the Lord opened her heart to pay attention to what was said by Paul. And after she was baptized in her household as well, she urged us, saying, If you have judged me to be faithful to the Lord, come to my house and stay. And she prevailed upon us. Lydia comes to believe in Jesus Christ and is baptized. And it mentions her household too, but we're not to understand that they were just throwing water onto people whether they believed or not. She was baptized because she believed in what we can imply from, uh, 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 imply from that is that her household also came to believe the message. A little later in Acts chapter 16, Paul and Silas are, are thrown into jail for preaching the gospels, the gospel. And they were singing and giving hymns to God while they were prisoners. There was a great earthquake in verse 26. So the foundation of the prison were shaken and immediately all the doors were opened and everyone's bonds were unfastened. And when the jailer woke and saw that the prison doors were opened, he drew his sword and was about to kill himself, supposing the prisoners had escaped. But Paul cried out with a loud voice, Do not harm yourself, for we are all here. And the jailer called for lights, and he rushed in, and he trembled with fear. And trembling with fear, he fell down before Paul and Silas. And they brought, he brought them out and said, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? So apparently the Lord had brought conviction to him. He opened his heart to understand what the gospel was. And they answered simply, believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, you will be saved, you and your household. And they spoke the word of the Lord to him and to all who were in his house. And he took them that same hour of the night and washed their wounds. And he was baptized at once, he and all his family. And again, the implication here is that as he came to, get, to believe and was baptized, that all of his household believed and was baptized. This goes on and on. We could go Acts 18, but you get the idea. The scriptures survey for us that the initiation to the Christian life, that God has given us a physical, tangible, outward expression that conveys an inner reality, a spiritual truth about repenting from our sins and coming to Jesus Christ. So that's what baptism is. Who should get baptized? Well, as I alluded earlier, just believers. Those, those who are Christians. Those who have been taught the basics of the Christian faith. 
Well, what is that? Well, we had a great conversation this last week uh, exploring what, what does that mean? What does it mean to be a Christian? And Emmy asked this question, and so uh, Emmy and I, we, and Janet, we had a great conversation about this, and I said, I summed it up. I said, well, let me give you three G's, three G's, a simple way to understand um, the, the message of the gospel. There's other ways you could do it. It's not the only one, but I, this is what came to me. Um, the first one is, is guilt. Guilt. The first thing we have to understand is that we are guilty of sin. Go back to our passage in Ephesians chapter 2. Notice the first three verses. Where the Apostle Paul, writing to a church, by the way, he's writing to Christians, and he's reminding them of what their life was like B.C., before Christ. You were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind. And we're by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. Notice a couple of things there. He says, you were dead. Now, the organ inside of your chest, your heart may have been beating. You might have been breathing and sleeping and walking and eating, but you were dead, spiritually dead. So your outward physical self may have been alive, but spiritually you are dead because of your trespasses and because of your sins. And because of that, you're, de you're deserving of wrath. He, he says that we were, by nature, children of wrath. That's not unique to one segment of society. He says, like the rest of mankind, all of mankind stands before God in abject guilt and poverty before him. So I said, that's the first thing you have to understand. You have to understand guilt. Everyone who gets baptized needs to understand that they're guilty before a holy God. And second, we were trapped in the van, by the way, traveling up to camping, so I was able to talk a little longer on these things. At home, maybe it would have been, you know, like, okay, Dad, i got to go outside. But that's the first one, guilt. Here's the second one, grace. Everyone who gets baptized needs to understand their guilt, but everyone who gets baptized needs to understand grace. And this is what Paul explains from verses 4 through 9. But God, what a wonderful expression right there. In the midst of talking about how you're dead, you're following the, the evil spirits of the world, you're following your flesh, you're, you're following the desires of not just your body, but your mind, by the way, that we're children of wrath. And he says, but God. Not but you, but God. God has to intervene. God has to condescend and do something to you to change you from your state of guilt to a state of grace. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. Notice how, what he says here. 
He says that you're dead, you can't do any, dead people can't do anything. He says that God needed to make you alive first. And he did so not because of any merit in you, but purely out of his love and his grace. That we were dead in sins and he makes us alive. Well, how does he do that? Well, he resurrects us. Well, how? How does he resurrect us? Well, he unites us to Jesus. He makes us alive and then he makes us willing to believe the message about who Jesus is and that when we confess, yes, I'm guilty. I'm confessing my sins. I'm repenting. Christ Jesus, show me your grace that we are now united with Jesus. And as Jesus himself was dead, crucified on a cross, but was raised, resurrected to new life, when you trust in Jesus Christ, the same happens to you. That's what his argument here. Even when we were dead in our trespasses, that's verse 5, he made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. It's like he inserted that there too early or he wanted to repeat it because he repeats it again in verse 8. Not only did he make us alive together with Christ in verse 6 and he raised us up with him and then he goes even further and he seats us with him in the heavenly places with Christ. I remember when I first read this in college and I was like, oh, that's really cool and I put my address is heaven. I put my address is Ephesians um, 2 6 or will be my address will be Ephesians 2 6 and then I was reading it again and talking with a friend of mine there and we were reading it and we we're like, actually notice it's in the present tense he's raised us up and he has seated us with Christ positionally we are with Christ in heaven now and so I scratched it out in my Bible my address is Ephesians 2 6 and he did this so that in the coming ages, he might show the immeasurable riches. How much riches does God have? Immeasurable. The immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness toward us in Jesus Christ. And for by grace, you have been saved through faith. We come to believe. And this is not of your own doing. It is the gift of God. Now, many will say that the this here in verse 8, this is referring to faith, that faith is a gift. And I believe that, though, um, exegetically, that the this doesn't agree um, in gender with the, the noun faith. It doesn't agree with any of it, actually. The nearest word you have to go to, I think, is way up saved, like a verb. And so in this way, he's saying this is not that this is not of your own doing. Saying, you know, this, your faith is not of your own doing. He's saying all of it. All of it, the salvation, the grace, the kindness, the love, the mercy, none of that was your doing. It's all a gift. So hence grace. And so I said, everyone who gets baptized needs to understand their guilt. And everyone who gets baptized needs to understand that this is a work of God's grace that you just receive by faith. You receive in faith. And then the, there's the third G, and that is gratitude. And this is connected to this receiving in faith. You're, you're doing this out of gratitude for God. You receive this, and then you now walk in obedience to Christ. Verse 10, 
for we are God's workmanship. I love that. It's the, um, uh, the, the, ver- the word there is uh, poema. So where we get the English word poem, the work of art, craftsmanship. Notice he's saying it. We are his workmanship. We are created in Christ Jesus for good works. He's prepared them in advance for us. And now we just, we walk in them and we do them out of gratitude to him. So baptism is a means of grace. It's a part of New Testament worship. It's it's an ordinance that was appointed by Jesus himself. It's not something that the, the church came up with. Although if the apostles had come up with it and it was in the New Testament, it would have that authority. But this comes from Jesus himself. And it is a sign of our union with Christ by faith in him. Let me read for you um, the catechism question from the Baptist catechism. When it says, what is baptism? Baptism is an ordinance of the New Testament. Uh, some versions of this say a sacrament. So it might be familiar to you, but it's a, it's a sacrament. It's an ordinance of the New Testament. It's commanded one of two. That and the Lord's Supper that we took together. Baptism and the Lord's Supper were kind of in tandem. Baptism is pictures, as we pointed out, the initiation into the Christian life. It's that outward symbol to remind us, yes, indeed, I am dead, was dead in my sins, and that I had been united with Christ. And as, as I'm going into the water, it pictures my burial. And as I come back out, it pictures my coming uh, to, to life again. Or as it's used with water, it's a picture of being dirty and washing and now uh, coming out clean and then putting on new clothes. Clothed in Christ. And the Lord's Supper then is kind of the ongoing reminder of this. Should be the weekly reminder of this grace that we take with joy and celebration. So baptism is an ordinance of the New Testament instituted by Jesus Christ to be unto the party baptized a sign of his fellowship with him. In his death, your fellowship with Jesus in his death, your fellowship with Jesus in his burial, your fellowship with Jesus in his resurrection. And it's of being engrafted into him. You're in Christ now. It's a sign of the remission of our sins and of his giving up himself unto God through Jesus Christ to live and to walk in newness of life. It's a sign that you are forgiven and it's a sign that you are alive and can now walk in gratitude and in obedience to him. So that is baptism. Who should be baptized? Believers only. Repentance, belief, and then committing to walk in obedience to Christ. Only those who actually do profess faith in Christ are to be baptized. There's other questions too, like how is baptism done? Well, no sprinkling, no pouring. I mean, there's some that do, some traditions that do do that. But uh, connected to what the word means and, and how it's 
described in the Old Testament, or in the New Testament, excuse me, that it's done by immersion. It's done with water. It's actually done with water. There's some church traditions that say, no, in the New Testament, it's just a spirit baptism. But they mention the word water. (laughs) Jesus came up out of the water. Why would we withhold water from these disciples? And it's done in the triune name of God, as we saw from the Great Commission. So that's what baptism is. That's who should do it. And hopefully you could see why it should be done. So now that here's the, the application. Three, three applications here, or three groups to whom this applies. If you are a Christian and baptized, then maybe today's teaching is a good reminder for you of, what, of the reality of what happened to you in your baptism. The, what, what happened to you at baptism didn't just happen to you on the day of that baptism. This is a sign that you have fellowship with him, that you are dead, you were buried with Christ, and that you have been resurrected to new life. That's the Apostle Paul's point in Romans chapter 6, is to say you can't keep going on sinning because of your baptism. Do you remember? You were baptized. You were buried with Christ. And as you came up out of the water, you were raised with Christ. So therefore, you have to put your deeds to death. So if you're a Christian and are baptized, remember back on your baptism, or if maybe it's too long ago and you can't remember it, at least remember the fact that you are baptized and rejoice in what this means for you. If you're a Christian but not baptized, well, then I would have a question for you. Would you consider it? It's an ordinance by the Lord Jesus himself In the New Testament, if you claim faith in Jesus Christ and admit your guilt before a holy God and have recognized that the grace that has been shown to you in Christ Jesus, then would you consider following him in baptism? Because Jesus, remember, John was like, are you sure you should be baptized? I must do this now to fulfill all righteousness because I'm identifying with those who come with me. I'm authenticating your, your work, John. So would you consider following Jesus' command, following his, his call to be baptized? And then you can look back on what that outward uh, physical act means for you spiritually and inwardly. And then lastly, if you're not a Christian, I hope that you would have a clear understanding of what it means to be one. Being a Christian is not a list of dues. It's not of achieving a status of merit before God. Being a Christian is receiving the gift God is offering to you. It's recognizing that, yes, indeed, you are dead in your trespasses. And I pray that even now that the Spirit of God is using the Word of God to soften your heart so that you would hear and understand that truth. That you'd become aware of your guilt before God. You too would be cut to the heart and that you would say, what should I do? You should receive the gift of grace by believing Jesus Christ.
and then get baptized. So this is baptism, friends. This is, this is why I'm a Baptist. Reformed or not, this is why I am one. And that's why we are a Baptist church, and I am so thrilled that we get to partake of this together. It really is, a, a, it, it, elsewhere in our the little Baptist confession of faith, it says this is an act of worship, like the word, like prayer, like the Lord's Supper, like singing of psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. Baptism is an act of worship and should be done in the context of our church community. So I'm so excited for us to get together, all of us, to watch and witness before one another these people following Jesus Christ in baptism. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Gracious Heavenly Father, we do indeed give you all thanks and praise and glory and honor for your goodness to us as demonstrated in Christ Jesus. We thank you for the grace to save us through the works of your son Jesus and not through works of our own. Help us to remember that grace always and to walk in obedience to Christ out of gratitude for the amazing work that he has done in us. Father, we pray for those people in our church who are considering undergoing baptism. We pray for them even now that you would drive these truths home into their hearts and that they would be looking forward to this, this day with joy and celebration. And so we thank you for this gift that you've given to us in Christ and we could celebrate together. And it's in Jesus' mighty and precious and holy name and by the power of the Holy Spirit that all of us, your people, can say, amen, amen. Friends, let's stand for our closing um, commission and benediction. Here's our commissioning for all of us. The words I read earlier, the words of Jesus himself. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, Christ is with you always to the end of the age. And we say, Amen. Amen. May the grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord, whose divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us to his own glory and excellence. Thank you.